Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. All right. Well, if you uh, were here last week, uh, we were in Genesis, and uh, I have I've been kind of going through Genesis as I've been here over the last few months. My name is Tom Richter. I realize for some of you, I've not yet had the opportunity to meet you. My name is Tom. And I'm a pastor in Jamaica, Queens, and we have services that meet in the evening time. So I can come here and uh, be a part of the family of City on a Hill uh, some Sundays where uh, I get the honor and the privilege of opening God's Word and doing some of the teaching. And then we have, uh, I'll race back to Queens and we have two services tonight. And so uh, that's, that's why I'm here and that's who I am. And I hope to uh, get the chance to learn your story and to find out about you. It's a great privilege to be here. If you're new to City on a Hill, I'm telling you, you're at a good place. I don't know how you find it. If you just if you just Googled Christian churches, you know, or whatever, or church, but church near Walmart, you know, whatever it is, you know, because you want to multitask. I get it. However you found it, I'm telling you, you're at a good place. Um, you're at a good place. This place is going to love you, care for you, and they're uh, going to preach God's word. And uh, today we're in Genesis chapter 50. This is the final. This is the. Fi- finale in my series on Genesis. You can go back to City on a Hill's website and look at the media library and you can go back and listen to some of the some of the parts of Genesis if you missed and you can catch up. And the reason I would want you to do that is not just be presumptuous, not just because I preach such great sermons, not at all, but because Genesis is a foundational book to help yourself and to help your friends come around this truth. When God is most silent is often when he is most active. And we always think the opposite. We always think if he's silent and there's evil in my life, how could you believe in a God that would allow this? Well, if God is so good, why would he allow such and such? The Probably the place, certainly a great place in the scriptures to undo some of that bad theology. Well, if God is so good, then why is, you know... why am I struggling with this? Why, why, why did my uh, loved one just get this terrible report back on their health? You know, you're a middle schooler. If God is so good, why can't I get my locker open, right? All the many struggles you have in life. People go, well, if life is so bad, why is God so good? There may be no better place in the Bible to take him than the, the story of Joseph. Where over and over, it's just evil and evil. In the midst of all this evil, God is not just good. God is using the evil and redeeming it. For ultimate good. And this speaks loud and clear into our life. When we look around, we see so much evil. How can there be a good God when there's so much evil? There may be no better place to go in the Bible than the back half of Genesis. And that's where we've been spending these these last few weeks. This is the conclusion. And so, uh, if you were here last week, we sort of summarized the story of Joseph. And by now, uh, Joseph has been revealed to his brothers, right? You know, his brothers were these these, uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells, and they had such hatred in their heart. But as Pastor Linda mentioned last week, we talked about people do change. The unchanging God changes people, and he changed their hearts. And you see the brothers are reunited to Joseph, right, in that great scene. They didn't know it was Joseph the whole time, and finally, right, it's me, I'm your broseph. And they, like, unite. I know, all week I was planning that moment, and I, I spent it poorly, but yeah. Uh, right, and they reunite, and now let's go back and get dad. They all come and live in Egypt. Pharaoh's like, 
you can, you can live here in Goshen. It's a great place. In fact, I'll give, I'll give some of you jobs, y'all shepherds. Hey, take care of my livestock. Because one thing I've learned about you uh, children of Israel, whatever you touch turns to gold, man. I mean, Joseph is a genius. You're, God's hand is on you. So take over my livestock. And if you ever wonder why did God have to rescue the people out of Egypt, that's where it comes from. Genesis is sort of how people get into Egypt. And they're there and they're feasting and uh, all is well. Jacob dies. Uh, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, it's the same guy. Jacob and Israel, same person, had these 12 sons. That's why we call them the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. That's where we get that. When Jacob dies, okay, there's this great moment when, you know, they go out and, and they bury him, they do everything. But then the brothers start, start thinking, right? They start, start thinking. Now, Joseph Joseph's been awfully good to us. Yeah, he really has. You know, we were so wrong to him, and we created such evil in his life, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, in fact, when we threw him in the well and we heard him screaming out, save us, save us, we just ate his food, ate his lunch. We're so callous to his pain. And because of what we did, he didn't die, but he was sold into slavery. I mean, the guy was a slave. He was falsely accused. He was in prison. We... We're the cause of some tremendous misery. And remember a couple months ago when he forgave us? Yeah. What are you getting at, Reuben? Well, Simeon. Come here. Levi. Yeah. Gad. Asher. Naphtali. Come here. Come here. You know what I'm thinking? Benjamin. No, no, no. You know what I'm thinking? What? I'm thinking, what if he's just been nice to us out of honor for, for dad? What if the only reason he's been so cool to us is because he's honoring his father, Jacob? And now that Jacob is dead, you don't think like he's waiting to just unleash his wrath on us oh gad i never thought that i know dan simeon that's a good word you're probably right now why would these guys think that don't you know that's the case when you are so hardened and you're so callous don't you know it's like it's really hard for you to receive true grace They'd received the grace of Joseph. They'd been truly forgiven, but they never could believe it. Because in their heart, that's not what they would have done. They, they had been so hurt, and that's true. Hurt people and wounded people. They don't know, what to, they don't know how to react when, you, when you're offering free grace, right? Calloused, hard people. It's very hard to just hit them with a bunch of grace. They don't know what to do. You don't believe me? Go to the seven train. Go, 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 go to Jamaica Station. Go to the subway with me on Monday morning and let's stand there and offer free coffee and donuts to every commuter. We've done it. Here's what happens. What's your angle? Right? We're a Christian church. Right? What's in this coffee? Like, what have you done? We found. You, you can only give wrapped items, right? You can give sticks of gum. You can give granola. Even then, man, crazy stuff. Everybody's got an angle. The best was, is there like a, a hidden camera in here where you're going to track all us sinners' movements? Which, of course, you double down on that. I've always learned to double down on the crazy. Yes. I probably changed that guy's life. I probably set him on a course of righteousness. Because he don't, you know, the tinfoil hat. He's like, you know. Oh, you double down on the crazy. You never back away. Uh, 
But anyway, you see, my, what's your angle? You can't be so good to me. Why? Because deep down, I would never be that good to you. And that, 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 that's so hard to undo. It take, it's, for some of us, it takes years of being around God's good grace. Because in the back of our mind, we would always hold out from him. There's a story. I was in, uh, we, we did go to India a couple years ago. And I heard this Indian pastor tell this great story. And I still can't figure out how he made it funny. I've told it ten times since, and it's never funny. So I'll just tell it and just don't expect it to be funny. But it's a good point. He says, this, the little boy and the little girl both get treats. One gets a, a bag of candies. And the, and the, and the, um, uh, the uh, boy gets a, a bag of marbles and he wants those chocolates that the girl gets. And so he says, hey, uh, g- give me, you know, give me, uh, give me your chocolates and I'll give you my marbles. Right. And um, and uh, he's holding back. And when he gives her, she agrees to the trade. And uh, when he gives him all the marbles, he holds one back and she gives him the chocolates. And as he walks off, he goes, did you give me all those chocolates? See what I mean? It's not funny, but he told it. It was so funny. <laughs> But in his heart, he had a heart that held back, so he could never really trust the grace of another. Like, I hope the point made sense, even if the punchline failed. Yeah. Um, so he, they could never understand. And so, so let's start in verse 15, Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. You'll see this. They're, they're, they're thinking like, man, I think, I think Joseph, has, it, he hasn't been forgiving. He's been biding his time. And so uh, if you could help me by advancing the slides there, we'll, we'll just start on 15. I'll, I'll read them here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, I think it's the next one. I don't know why. I always put a blank one first. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So this is, this is great. This is what they do. So they sent this message to Joseph. Oh, um. Before he he died, your father gave a command. This was like his last words. You weren't there because you were in Egypt because we sold you into slavery. So you you missed this. But like before he died, on his deathbed, these were his words. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression. Now, you have a very high view of human nature if you think this was not completely fabricated. You understand? The brothers are making that there is no record in Genesis of Jacob ever saying this. They're just like, you know, you know what dad's last wish was? Don't kill us. <laughs> Say this, forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. That was his message. Therefore, please forgive the transgressions of your servants of the God of your father. The Bible says Joseph wept when their message came to him. I think he wept because he realized they still didn't take his forgiveness seriously. I think he was crushed. I think he was brokenhearted because he's like, really? Really? You still don't believe in in grace? You still don't? Like, we're still doing this? And so he wept. Then his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we are your slaves. You remember Joseph had two dreams where things were bowing down to him in symbol. We've seen it once last week. Here's the second fulfillment of the dream. Sure enough, promise made, promise kept. They bow down. They say, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them. Now his response, Derek Kidner said that uh, this is a summation of old and new covenant theology in his response. This is a response that sparkles with faith. This is a stunning response that Joseph gives. Don't be afraid, he says. Am I in the place of God? Now, what he says next, we're not going to turn to just yet. What he says next, 
you might be tempted to build a sermon around that. Because what he says next is pretty famous. Many of you know it. He says this line. What, in fact, finish it if you know it. And you might have a different translation of version. But I bet you'll get close. You intended this for evil, but God... Well, he's helping you out. But God meant it for good. That's right. For the saving of many people. That's right. That's right. And that's what he says next. But to me, the, 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 the point of this is that phrase. Can we back up to that, that? That am I in the place of God? That's what I want to get our heads around today. That's what I think gives Joseph's response such power. Am I in the place of God? If you're a note taker today and you're like, man, I really try to listen to the sermon. I try to internalize it and take notes, but I'm always worried it's going to be so subtle and I won't get the point. That's the point. That's the sermon. Like if you nod off in a few minutes and wake back up at the end, what I meant, that. If you get that, you got the whole point. That's what I'm trying to say. Ask yourself today, am I in the place of God? Are you sitting in God's chair this morning? Are you sitting in God's ch- chair this morning? When I was a, uh, when I was a boy, my, uh, my mom was a substitute teacher. I don't think in all the years here I've come down. Am I allowed to do this? Is this a... <laughs> I didn't know what the protocol was on that. When I was a boy, um, my mom was a substitute teacher, which was so cool as a little kid because it meant that after school was done, she had to tidy things up, and we went over to her... Uh, uh, classroom but then we had free reign of the school and so me and my little sisters could go into all these places in the school because there's nobody left around right and man i remember uh going into the uh, uh principal's office so it was just unlocked the office suite can you imagine and so there's me you, do i does anyone know do i even need to finish this story we all know where this is going right so i'm kicked back in the principal's big manager chair i got my feet up there and then of course you what do you naturally do i'm the principal you start imitating impersonating right because one day god's going to use that gift for sermon but at the time you're just a punk and so it's like it's like yeah i'm the principal and i start doing some of his mannerisms which he had it, it, anyway it's sinful the point is uh, i'm doing all this everybody's dying laughing when somebody comes out of the copy room who had been there all along yeah yeah and yeah, and it, yeah, and it's the principal, and I just turn, I just turn white as a ghost because I know what's about to unfold, and I'm like, "You're gonna kill me." Then my mom is gonna bring me back from the dead to kill me again. That's my future, right? But he's a very cool guy, very gracious, and he was like, uh, all he said was, "Son, I believe you're in my chair." I was like. We will never speak of this again, right? I was like, yes, right? We are your servants. I mean, it felt just like the, yeah. Uh, it was a very awkward moment. Can I tell you, there's going to be an awkward moment for some of you this morning. If you listen carefully to God's word, you might hear, you're going to hear a word of encouragement. You're going to hear a word of encouragement. You are. You're going to hear a word of grace. But for some of you, the word is, son, daughter, I believe you're in my chair. How do, I, how do I sit in God's... How have I been sitting in God's chair? I'm going to give you four ways, and you can jot them down if you want, or you can just remember them. Uh, the first is, you sit in God's chair when you become your own moral authority. That's the first. When you begin to decide what's right and wrong. You know what you're doing? You're sitting in God's chair. You're sitting in God's chair. I'll give you the biblical example of that, and I'll give you a modern-day example of that. The biblical example of that's very easy to see. It's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to where this Genesis series would have started. 
And you go back to the Garden of Eden, and can you remember what God's word was to the people? Do, do you remember, like, 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 like he, he gave them the commands of the garden and everything, you know, be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth and subdue it. But then he tells them, right, what is God's command? How could God's commands be summed up? Don't eat that tree. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat that tree. Can we all stop for a moment and ponder just how short Adam and Eve's Bible was? You can put their Bible in a fortune cookie. That's it. That's the scriptures. That's, you got your Bible? Yeah, right here. Don't eat that tree. Awesome. Gone. You guys want to have a Bible, another Bible study next week? I, I think we're good. And a Hebrew word for tree. No, I mean, just don't eat it. Like, yeah, that's their whole Bible. That's their whole Bible. And Satan tempts them to doubt God's word. Almost literally word. There was that, right? You, you know, I, what I'm, my point is, I'm not saying like, oh, going into the text criticism and this scriptures and we go through and we doubt every little bit of it. This, this temptation's old as time. He gets him to doubt that simple word. Did God really say, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Not something. Gets him to doubt. No, no, no. He says, no, no, no. Um, uh, God says that's wrong. But what's his temptation? What's his temptation? Um, God says that's wrong, Adam and Eve. But uh, I, the fact is, he knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Do you know what Satan's temptation was? What does he mean? If you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. A lot of people think that when they read that, that, that you'll be like God, that there's something very spiritual about that temptation. That if you eat this forbidden fruit, there's like God juice inside of that. And when you eat it, you're suddenly, you're a spiritual being, whereas before you were just a fleshly being. And now, you know, but that's, no, 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 no. Sin is always more boring and mundane than that. What he meant was simply this. God says it's wrong. But if you say, I don't care what God says, I say it's right, you have just de facto been like God. When you look at Genesis chapter 3 sometime, not right now because I'm, I'm trying to focus on this, but when you look at Genesis 3, the lie that Satan tells is like an onion, and you just peel layer after layer. There's no end to the lie, the levels of lying and deception that are in that. And uh, to me, that's, that's, that, that, that's one of the levels of lie. You, he thinks you'll be like God. There's some really cool, like, spiritual thing that'll happen. No, you will put yourself in God's chair. In a way, it's kind of true. If you choose to say, well, God says it's wrong, but I say it's right, you're just sitting in God's chair. You're making yourself your own moral authority. And Satan promises them, then you'll know good from evil. It's a lie. Man, we were, we're more confused after the fall than we were before. We still don't know good from it. We're, we're still getting this wrong. It's, it's a lie. Satan, sin never gives you what it promises. You're sitting in God's chair when you make yourself your own moral authority. Now, how do we do it today? How do we do it today? Same thing. We sit in God's chair when we say this. Well, a hundred years ago, you could believe this thing. Cover to maps. I mean, a hundred years ago, you could really sink your teeth into the word of God. You could believe this, the word of God. But now, come on. Haven't we progressed? Ah, yeah. I, honestly, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit in judgment on the word of God. And I'm going to take part of it. And I'm going to leave part of it. And I'm going to be very cool with parts of it. And I'll champion it and celebrate it. But other parts, I'll not only not preach on, I might even be openly hostile to. What have I done? I've made myself in the place of God. And today, if you're doing that, get out of God's chair. I don't get to tell the Bible, uh, 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 here, change to fit my life. I have to change my life to fit the Bible. I come under the word of God. There's no way around that. 
That's not going to change. You go to all different kinds of denominations and different kinds of styles of worship and all that stuff. The question you've got to be asking yourself is, are we coming under the word of God? Otherwise, we're sitting in God's chair. The second one is, so if you, I told you there were four. You sit in God's chair if you make yourself your own moral authority. Hey, you're sitting in God's chair, the second one. This one it may be a little subtle, but it's, uh, I think it especially applies to me, so I didn't want to leave it out. Um, you're sitting in God's chair... If you let people, how do I say this? I don't want to say let them treat you like God. If you let people come to you to meet their deepest needs. This one, look, many of you in this room, you are, you, you are in an occupation where you're trying to help people, right? We got doctors in here, therapists, teachers, social workers, ministers. And, 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 and we're at the top of the list on this, Okay. When we allow people to come and help us, that, I mean, I mean and for us to help them, that is a good thing. You need to do that. But it's very easy to cross a line when you almost encourage and enable people to come to you as if you're God, as if you're in the place of God. And you have to continually remind yourself, I am not in God's chair. I can't fix you. I can't save you. I'm your doctor. I'm here to help you. But you, can, you are sitting in God's chair if you think that you can be for them their savior. Now, I, I don't want to push too hard on this. Like, please, this week, if you're a doctor, don't be like, can you help me? I'm sorry, my preacher said no. <laughs> Doing it right. Doing it wrong. No, like, not, not going to happen, okay? You, yes, I want you to help people. But does everybody understand what I mean? There's this thin, like, one of the best, oh, uh, James preached on it on August 24th. He preached on it in this church. The reason I, I remember this is because he actually named it the Big Dipper. It's the sermon of Naaman, the Syriite, who dipped into the water. I mean, you got to call him out on that. Anyway, he, uh, he, uh, he and I were laughing about it last week. The point is, that is an amazing story. It's in 2 Kings 6. James preached on it and, and crushed that. Go back and listen, August 24th. Here's what's so good about it. The, the Naaman is the general, Syria. And he's got this terrible skin disease. He's got leprosy. So he says, uh, goes around the kingdom, how do I get this fixed? Nobody can fix it. And so he said, somebody tells him, you can get this fixed in Jerusalem. I heard about this. You go to Jerusalem. So he's like, all right. So he gets a letter from the king to the king of Jerusalem. Gives the king of Jerusalem the letter. And it says this. Please accept my servant Naaman. Yo, love the king of Syria. Cure him. Heal his deepest need. You know what the king does? Rips his clothes. Am I God? You think I have the power of life and death? You think I can cure and heal? Rips his clothes. Every now and then, if you're in a profession or you are a parent and you're tempted to be the Messiah for somebody, every now and then I think we need to just rip our clothes figuratively. We can sell our books. We can, especially the better you get at this job, we can do all that stuff. At some point, we've got to be honest and rip our clothes and say, I'm not God. I've never preached a sermon that has saved anybody. Only God saves. I've never prayed a prayer that God answered because he was like, oh, 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 Tom's praying. Why didn't you say so? I'll get on that. He's got the hotline. The rest of y'all got to, you know, stay on hold. Doesn't work that way. It's, not, it's just the truth, right? You got you to rip your clothes at some point. It's, when you, some of you single, you get married. And when you get married, crazy stuff starts happening in your heart. I love this person. I really like this person. I'm, I'm going to be with this person. Forever. This person will meet my deepest need. At that point, couples, you need to look at each other and tear your, rip your collar. Just. 
Didn't think that through. Just symbolically, tear your collar. Why? I, you need to look, at some point in your premarital counseling, you need to look at each other and go, you realize I'm not God. There are things in, marriage can be a great blessing, but there are things in me that I can't, I am not God. And there are things that you're not going to find in me that you can only find in God. That's why it's no downfall if you're single here today. Because you're complete in God, not complete in some other person. So if you're a married person, steward the gift of marriage. If you're a single person, be a good steward of your singleness and be awesome at it. Why? Because we're complete in God. And a lot of people allow themselves to be treated as if, well, I can solve you. I can, right? We're not, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. Am I in the place of God? We allow ourselves to sit in God's chair when we do that. The third is... Um, uh, we sit in God's chair, and this one's hard. We sit in God's chair when we have excessive worry. Um, here's what I mean by that. Excessive worry. I don't want to pick too much on worry. Because if you drive out of here and you have a flat tire and you're worried that somebody's going to like come over and, and run over you while you're fixing the flat tire, that's legitimate worry. Okay, No, no judgment here. It's excessive worry. And the reason I feel bad about preaching against excessive worry is because worry is a sin. It's like got this big bad brother called doubt. And that's why preachers talk about worry as if it's a sin. The trouble with preaching on worry as a sin is that you have some people coming here today who are like, I'm so filled with anxiety. I'm so nervous. I'm so worried. And I'm so guilt ridden. I feel so condemned. I know I shouldn't worry. And you come here and you're like, oh, and by the way, worry also a sin. <laughs> now I'm really worried. So I get that. I, I just, I understand that. I don't know what else to do about it. But here, but you ever think about why? Did you ever think about why preachers are forced to say something like worry is a sin? The way I put it is, it's like, it's got this big bad brother that it's so closely related to. And it takes all its orders from called doubt. And you may not be necessarily guilty of the sin of doubt, but you're guilty to its close relative. And that's what we're trying to eradicate. Here, here's what happens when you worry. Here's why. Here's why I say you're sitting in God's chair. Think about when you worry, what you're effectively saying is this. Well, I have perfect knowledge of the outcomes that need to happen in my life. And if God would just get with the program and arrange the outcomes that I know need to happen, we'll be good. But that's why worry puts you in his chair. What you're, you're being so presumptuous. You might be worrying about things happening in a certain way that could be certainly wrong. You don't know. You don't know. You have all these desired outcomes. You think, if I could just get this. But what if the best thing that could happen to you would be some crazy blessing in disguise that you would have never picked? You don't, you're not smart enough to worry. So stop. Oh, I don't feel bad about worrying. I feel bad about being dumb. This sermon is terrible. I know. But you get what I'm saying? Get out of God's chair. You don't have to worry. You, you, you cannot predict the desired outcomes and get mad at God or get worried that he's not going to fulfill that stuff. Take yourself out of God's chair. Excessive worry comes when you are 100% sure you know exactly what needs to happen and you're afraid that God won't get it right. But you can't be 100% sure. So my point is, most people, when they preach on worry, they say, trust God more. This time, I'm trying to not only say that, I'm trying to say, you don't, you don't, we're not smart enough to know 100% of what needs to happen. So take yourself out of God's chair. It just admit it. When I take myself out of God's chair, I say, God, I got to be honest. I don't, I don't even know what the best outcomes are. So I'm not going to stand in the place of God. And finally, when you hold a grudge. So uh, when you uh, be your own moral authority, 
when you allow others to treat you as if you're God, you know, when you don't rip your clothes and say, I'm not God. Uh, I, I will help you, but my best job is to turn you on to the one who can ultimately help you. Of course I'm going to cure. Of course I'm going to therapy and social work and all that's good. But I can't be God. When you have excessive worry, and finally when you hold a grudge, and this is from tonight's text, Joseph makes a clear implication when he says, of course I forgive you. <coughs> he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You can put up verse 19 up there. <clears throat> Am I in the place of God? What, what's the implication? That every person who keeps a grudge and stays resentful and angry towards someone who wronged you is simply sitting in God's chair. Now, that, you, you didn't hear me say that there won't be judgment, there won't be wrath, um, all that stuff. I preach on judgment, I preach on wrath. It's just that the reason judgment... It's like, unless your business card says God of the universe, you're not the judge. Like, there is a judge. But the only one who can judge is the one whose business card says God of the universe. And if that's not you, you got to get out of his chair. And that's why you can't hold a grudge. Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Leave room for God's judgment. Over and over. First Thessalonians. Over and over. What does Paul say? See to it that no one repays evil for evil. Why? It's not you're, you're sitting in God's chair. That's what Joseph is saying. I am not in God's chair. Why? Here's why. Here's why only God can judge. Number one, only God has the right to judge. Most people get this one. At least this is the first one that comes to my mind. I'm a sinner. And so if I'm judging another sinner, it's sort of like, come on, bro. It's almost hypocritical at that point. You're you're, you're pointing out this person's sin, but who are you to judge? You've got your own sin in your own life. Fair enough. Only God, God is sinless, so he has the right to judge. But what about this? I hadn't thought of this. Only God has the knowledge needed to judge. You know what would be the worst job in the world? And if you, had it, if you have this job, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. I'm glad somebody has to have this job. This would be a nightmare for me. Sitting in family court on Sutton Boulevard, hearing divorce cases all day long. Just seeing what God joined together, watching two people try to un-one what God made one, would be miserable to me. And the thing, it would be so hard to be a judge. Anybody in here has been through divorce, you, you know that th- th- that would be a miserable job. Here, here's what is so hard about being that judge. The knowledge you would need. Because I heard one guy tell me there's three sides to every case. His side, her side, and the truth. And that's just it. You, to know the truth, to be a good judge, you'd have to see all. If only there were a judge who had full omnipotent knowledge. Now that person, we would elect judge, Supreme Court for all eternity and time. I'm talking about God. Like that, that, but you see what I'm saying? That would be the one we would want in that chair. Anybody else you wouldn't want. You don't have the knowledge to pour out wrath. You don't, have the, you don't know what you're doing. Isn't that true? We've all experienced that in small ways. Uh, this preacher was telling a story. You know how anything could happen to a preacher. It immediately gets filed away as a sermon illustration. That's what happened to this guy. He was sitting on a subway train, and this guy was, his kids were going bonkers. He had these three kids. They were running around. They were like running up and down the train, punching other passengers. Finally, this woman stands up and goes to the guy and says what the whole train is thinking. Sir! Think you could control your kids? I'm from a day when we used to control our kids. The guy finally snaps out. He says, I'm so sorry. Come on. True story. I'm so sorry. I'm coming back from the hospital. I just found out my wife's terminal. So they're going to pull the plug. It's it. I got these kids. I don't know what to do. Suddenly the whole trade's like, we will take your children, right? <laughs> right? Why? 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 Not one thing changed in the behavior. But why does everybody's attitude change? Knowledge. 
When you know something, it's different. You're walking down the street, somebody bumps into you, and you're like, man, what a jerk, until you find out his dog just died. And then you're like, bump me again. I'm, I'm sorry. I, why? Because knowledge matters. You don't know. You've got wrath planned for this guy, but you're going to do wrath wrong. You don't know. You don't know. Uh, it could be that what you have planned is not even, not even nasty enough for that evildoer. You are going to shortchange his wrath. But more likely... Is it what you had planned? You don't know the knowledge. You don't have the knowledge. That's why we do wrath wrong. Because we don't know. Only God has the knowledge. Only God has the right. Only God has the knowledge to hold a grudge. This is what it means in mind the place of God. And here, here, here. Only God has the power to pour out wrath and not himself become consumed by wrath. You don't have the power to do that. You start dabbling in wrath and wrath starts dabbling in your heart. You start dabbling and pouring out wrath and judgment on others. You can't handle that. You can't, that's like dealing with nuclear physics that you don't know how to control. God can. Tim Keller pointed that out. And so, of course, Tim Keller used an illustration from Lord of the Rings, which I love. And he said, that's the point of Lord of the Rings. There's a dark Lord out there. And there's the ring that, that he uses to control everybody. You could defeat the dark Lord by using the ring. But if you do, you become the dark Lord. And therefore, it must be destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom and Mordor. An amen from any geek in here. Like, thank you. Okay, okay. Like, leave me all alone. Sure. I don't know what he's talking about, honey. <laughs> yeah, right. My fellow geeks must unite. That's it. You don't have the power. You don't have the, you don't have the knowledge. And you don't have the right to judge. So uh, get out of God's chair. If you're holding a grudge, you're in the place of God. And uh, if you're uh, declaring that you're your own moral authority, you're in the place of God. And if you're treating, allowing people to treat you like God, you're in the place of, you're acting as if you're in the place of God. When you have excessive worry, you're acting as if you're in the place of God. Now, when Joseph does that, he is free. Uh, you would think, I get it, you would think, but, but, but look, if I get out of the place of God, if I get out of a seat of control, if I stop trying to control my life, if I take my hands off my life, so to speak, this Sunday morning in November... And I begin to bow the knee and say, you know what, Lord, you belong in the throne, not me. I'll lose control. Well, no. Nah. When anybody ever says that, when a human being ever says, I've lost control of my life, what they've lost is the illusion of control. Because they never really were in control of their life. And what we're scared of is losing the illusion of control. And it's a matter of trust. And when we do that, when we do that, we begin to see life from the proper perspective. What is the proper perspective for a Christian? It's not just what I do controlling from this captain's chair, but what God is doing. And look at Joseph's perspective. He says, verse 20, you planned evil against me. He would have never seen this if he had been in God's chair. He could not have seen this. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You meant it for evil. Now, listen, I got to say this. Joseph, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, 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 you know, life's not that bad. God works everything for good. Joseph is clear. Life is that bad. He uses the word evil. You planned evil. My life has been evil. Joseph's life is filled with evil. If you ask Joseph, hey, man, what an amazing thing God did in your life. Would you like to rewind and live that exact life again? He'd say, no. I want to live a comfortable life where there's full of good. Instead, his life was filled with evil. That's the word he uses. But, but, but. God is good. You will never get that perspective to be able to look around and say there's evil in the world and yet God is good as long as you're in God's chair. It won't happen. Joseph stepping out of God's chair is able to see that. 
Um, I didn't know this, uh, but in that same message where I heard Tim Keller say that thing about the Lord of the Rings, he said, Romans 8, 28, such a funny verse. You could go on for days and days. It says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And he said he traced his great, great, I'm probably getting the story wrong, but let's say his great, great, great grandfather traced, did some ancestor and some research stuff. And he said that uh, uh, Keller is the, um, his great, great, whatever, his dad, you know, was the last son of the fourth marriage of that great, great, great grandfather. He was a widower three, three times. So his, his wife dies, he had some kids. His second wife dies, had some kids with her. Third wife dies. And Keller says, as he's burying the third wife, thinking, can I open my heart to love again? And if I ever loved again, why? Like, what's the point of everything? Keller says, it's at that moment that I would like to jump from the future and go, well, me, for one. <laughs> right? I mean, if the guy doesn't, you could do that for days. You could unravel. But if I had never, huh, you know, if you had never, if that had never, and you eventually go, you know what, I got to get out of God's chair. Like, there's no, you couldn't even plan it for good or for evil. Then Whatever you're planning, it's what God is doing that is so much bigger than what's going on in your life right now. Can't you trust him? Can't you get out of his chair? But Tom, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've got to worry because I've got to maintain control of my life. You don't have control. What would I think today if I went home and I'm putting Katie to bed, my little five-year-old to bed tonight, and I hear clank, clank, clank in her pillow. Like, what is this? What, I open it up. It's a bunch of canned goods, food and non-perishables. What are you doing? Well, Dad, you know, for five years now, you've been pretty good at feeding me. <laughs> but I got to thinking. How do I know? You've been good for so long, but how do I know that uh, we could hit an economic downturn? I'm being prepared. Or what if your heart toward me changes and you decide you don't love me anymore? Wouldn't you look at your kid? That's not how fatherhood works. What? What are you talking about? You don't. What are you hoarding? That I, right? Get out of God's chair to look at your heavenly father and go, well, I know you brought me safe thus far. And I know you blessed me, but if I don't worry this thing through, it won't get done. <laughs> like spiritual hoarders hoarding the blessings and the goodness and the things God's given instead of giving them freely to a lost and broken world. What? Don't you know how your heavenly father works? So he says what you meant for evil. I'm in for good. He's free to do the impossible, and he's free to say, therefore, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you and your little ones. And Joseph spoke kindly to them. That's an important verse because all they'd done was spoke with discouragement, with, with, with the heartache and hatred. He spoke to them with encouragement, comfort, and love. And he said he, he would love those brothers who treated him with hatred. Now, if you leave here and you say, well, that's great, but I cannot do that. I cannot get out of God's chair. I would say there's some small sense in which you're not just being humble, you're being theologically correct. You cannot. However, there was one. There was one who had every right to sit in God's chair. Did you know that? There was one among us whose business card actually could have said, God of the universe. And that was King Jesus. And what did he do with the throne? He got up out of that heaven's throne. And was born as a little baby, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem. And over and over again, if anybody had a right 
to play the God card. If anybody had a right, what was Jesus doing? He was always giving the glory back to God. And if anybody had a right, when they, when they spat on him to spit back and say, oh, okay, this is how it goes, it was Jesus, but he didn't. If anybody had a right to condemn the world, it was Jesus. But John 3.17 says, God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And when he stretched out his arms on that cross, he had every right to be in God's chair. Instead, he was on my cross. What could cause that? Only love. Only deep abiding. Psalm 100 says, his faithfulness endures forever. Only love could drive someone to do that. He did that for you and for me. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, after he had done it in the resurrection, his name was above every name. And after he had made propitiation for sins, it says, King Jesus did what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You do not have to get in his chair, his throne. He's doing real well at sitting in the throne of your life. So, hey, let's get out of his chair tonight. Let's go, this morning, let's go back. Let's just be worshipers of the God who's in our chair. Let's humble, no excessive worry, all those things. We praise and we give it all to King Jesus. He's the one, just like Joseph, am I in the place of God? Metaphorically, we're ripping our clothes, God. We're saying to you today, we are not in your place. We are, if we've been in your chair, and it's so easy throughout the week to creep back into your chair, let this morning be a reset, a fresh start on this week of Thanksgiving where, where we start and by saying we're not in your chair. If we've got blessings that came from you, and if we've got evil in our life, we know you're working it for good. We've got the perspective to let it go, forgive our enemies, even, even ability because of your power to worry less this week. It's possible because of you. So forgive us when we've gotten in your chair and grant us the grace to say with Joseph, with even your son Jesus, am I in the place of God? Joseph had no right to be in your place. Jesus did. And instead took my place, the place of the people here. So we come in humility to your table, thanking you, oh God, with hearts full of gratitude, stepping out of your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn our attention now to the table. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread, and after he'd given thanks, he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't know how you need to apply this sermon to your heart, but if in your mind, I've got to get out of God's chair. I've got to get out of God's chair. If that's the mantra this week, um, I might add, because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus is in the chair, uh, I'd say that's a good place to start, to look for that application. The ushers are going to uh, minister in such a way that they'll get us to the table reverently. We invite all who are believers, all who cling to the truth in Jesus Christ to come. If you are a seeker, that means you're someone who's just, you're here, you're seeking, you're checking things out, you're getting your questions answered. We're glad you're here. And we want you to come back. Keep coming back. Chase after God. Those who seek, they always find. So continue that. But you could watch this thing unfold and no one would judge you or think less of you. Those who are believers, we we ask you to come uh, freely to the table and enjoy the good gifts of God. So allow the ushers to do their thing.
Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.